It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence and suicidal ideation that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. 17-year-old Ali Etier was searching through her closet, looking for something to wear to a graduation party when she heard her phone buzz with a text message. It was from an acquaintance, Michelle Carter, asking what she was up to. Allie didn't know the other girl very well. They had just started volunteering together at a children's summer camp a few weeks earlier. They'd hardly spoken, but Allie didn't want to be rude. So she replied to Michelle's message, telling her she was about to head out to a party. Allie thought that would be the end of it, but Michelle kept texting, prattling on about her day. Suddenly, out of nowhere, Michelle asked if she had a boyfriend. Allie was surprised. Why was this girl asking so many personal questions? She tried to brush the question off, replying, it's complicated, but Michelle didn't take the hint. She launched into a story about her own boyfriend, Conrad. Michelle confessed that she was worried about him. He wasn't answering her calls and quote, he's been suicidal. Allie didn't know what to say. She wrote back, sorry, I'm not much help. I just don't really know you or the situation that well. A minute later, Michelle's reply popped up. Haha, no, it's okay. Don't worry about it. And I mean, I feel like we are becoming good friends, so you'll know me well, soon. Allie put her phone away, unnerved. Michelle was coming on way too strong, and Allie felt unsettled by all the smiley faces and LOLs in Michelle's texts. It was peculiar. For someone who claimed to be worried about her suicidal boyfriend, Michelle sure didn't act like it. I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a podcast original. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Crimes of Passion for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. 
it really does help us. This week, we'll discuss the intense relationship between two Massachusetts teenagers, Conrad Roy and Michelle Carter. Although they only met in person a handful of times, they exchanged thousands of messages through text and Facebook, developing a close bond. But both struggled with serious mental health issues. Their troubles only grew worse over the course of their two-year on-again, off-again, long-distance relationship until the intimacy they shared became toxic and destructive. Next week, we'll talk about the tragic end of Michelle and Conrad's relationship and the highly publicized, groundbreaking legal case that followed. Michelle Carter was born on August 11, 1996. By all accounts, she had an unremarkable childhood. Her father, David, was a sales manager and her mother, Gail, worked in real estate. Michelle grew up on a quiet cul-de-sac in Plainville, Massachusetts, a suburb located about 28 miles southwest of Boston. Friends and neighbors in the community described Michelle as a kind, well-liked, and thoughtful child. But from a young age, she struggled with mental health issues. She reportedly suffered from violent night terrors when she was little. She later told a friend, I used to bang my head on the walls and scream, and when I woke up, I had no idea what happened. When she was only 11 years old, Michelle developed an eating disorder. Before I continue with Michelle's psychology, please note that I am not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. The causes of eating disorders are not fully understood, but eating disorder therapist, Jennifer Rowland, has said that people struggling with eating disorders often turn to their eating disorder behaviors in an unconscious effort to try to help themselves feel better and to cope with difficult emotions. Roland added that disordered eating is a self-soothing behavior in response to feelings of anxiety, sadness, or loneliness. In 2010, Michelle's parents admitted her into an inpatient program at a psychiatric hospital. Michelle's medical records indicate that the 14-year-old weighed just 86 pounds, her blood pressure was dangerously low, and she had chronic liver dysfunction as a result of her anorexia. In February of 2011, Michelle's primary care doctor prescribed her Prozac as a part of her treatment plan. The drug seemed to help Michelle gain weight, but it didn't eliminate Michelle's disordered eating patterns. Michelle's mother reported that the teen was prone to episodes of binge eating, followed by compulsive exercising. Michelle also told her peers that she felt suicidal at times and that she struggled with self-injury. She described herself as lonely. Although she wasn't unpopular, she had trouble making close friends. She once confided in a classmate that she didn't feel like she had any real friends and that nobody ever asked her to hang out after school. She texted another friend, Stop telling me how wonderful and beautiful I am because beautiful girls get invited to parties and their friends call and want to hang out. They don't spend Friday nights alone. Clinical psychiatrist Peter Bregan later said, there's no question that Michelle is always asking people to love her, 
A lot of her friends couldn't reciprocate because she's too desperate. She's so needy, it's a hole no one can fill. Dr. Bregan believed that Michelle behaved this way because she suffered from anxiety and depression. Michelle's self-esteem issues were not necessarily uncommon. In a study commissioned by the Dove Self-Esteem Fund, researchers found that 70% of teen girls feel insecure about their looks, performance in school, and relationships with friends and family members. But even if Michelle's feelings were common, they still caused her significant distress, and she used unhealthy coping mechanisms such as disordered eating and self-injury to cope with her insecurity. All Michelle wanted was someone who understood her, and in February of 2012, she thought she had found that person. That winter, 15-year-old Michelle went to visit her grandmother in Naples, Florida. There, she met Conrad Roy III. Conrad was visiting his great-aunt a few houses down from where Michelle was staying. Born September 12, 1995, Conrad was just a year older than Michelle. He was also from Massachusetts, specifically the coastal town of Mattapoisett, about an hour south of where Michelle lived in Plainville. Conrad's great aunt was friends with Michelle's grandmother. The two women introduced the teens and encouraged them to go on a bike ride together. Conrad and Michelle rode to the beach, talked and flirted. Michelle later said she liked Conrad right away. She said she could tell he liked her too because he asked if she had a boyfriend. When their Florida trip ended, they decided to keep in touch. For months, they exchanged messages by text and Facebook, communicating with each other on a daily basis. By the summer of 2012, they were calling each other girlfriend and boyfriend. Like Michelle, Conrad also struggled with mental health issues. In 2011, when he was 16 years old, he was hit particularly hard by his parents' acrimonious divorce. He began to suffer from depression and social anxiety. When his grades dropped in school, he told his parents it was because he had insomnia, racing thoughts, and gaps in his memory. His parents took him to therapists, but Conrad couldn't seem to tell them or his parents the extent of his depression. He later said he had trouble expressing himself in therapy, and he thought, even if he could explain how he felt, he didn't think anyone was capable of helping him anyway. Although his family knew he was struggling, they didn't know that he was experiencing thoughts of self-harm and suicide. Conrad didn't share these thoughts with Michelle either, at first. Their relationship was still fairly casual. In fact, Conrad wasn't the only person Michelle was interested in. In the summer of 2012, while she kept up her online relationship with Conrad, Michelle developed a bond with another girl on her softball team, Alice. The girls texted and messaged each other constantly. They frequently spent the night at each other's houses. According to Michelle, although Alice later denied it, this was more than a friendship. Michelle said, I thought it was a phase at first, like I thought we were just really good friends, but we started talking like people in a relationship would, flirting and stuff. 
Michelle also said that Alice was her first kiss. But Alice's mother, Kelly, didn't like the girls spending so much time together. Kelly later said she felt suspicious of Michelle right away. Something about the girl seemed phony. She reasoned, no kid is that nice. At one point, Kelly tried to confiscate Alice's phone to keep the girls from texting each other. Alice tried to trick her by handing over an old phone. Kelly also discovered that Alice had made a secret Facebook account so that the girls could continue to speak. Finally, in the early fall of 2012, she forbade Alice from seeing Michelle. Alice obeyed her mother. She blocked Michelle on social media and stopped responding to her calls and texts. Michelle was devastated. She later texted a friend, I never cry about things, but I cry over her. I cried telling my therapist about her today. I don't know why she has such a big impact on me. She just does. Michelle told another classmate that she hadn't felt happy since the friendship ended. Alice's rejection had hurt her more than anything. But Michelle didn't appear to let on to Conrad Roy that she was depressed about Alice. In messages to him around this time, she sounded upbeat and relaxed. They bantered and slung teasing insults at one another. They spoke about their favorite music. He chatted about his rowing team. She talked about basketball practice. There was little in these messages to suggest that both teens were in an intense amount of pain because Conrad was also in a dark place in the fall of 2012. Despite therapy, his suicidal ideation had increased. In October, 17-year-old Conrad waited until his mother left the house, then swallowed two whole bottles of Tylenol plus a bottle of NyQuil. However, he immediately regretted his decision. He texted a friend, Ariana, and told her he was sick. He asked her to call his mother for him. Conrad's mother, Lynn, returned home and rushed him to the hospital. Conrad promised his mother that he would never try anything like that again, but he still felt depressed, alone, and scared. Conrad didn't know how much longer he could go on. It was agony trying to live each day as if everything were normal. It would be a relief to just let the mask fall and to let everyone see who he really was, but he was afraid of what they would think. If they saw the real Conrad, maybe they would hate him as much as he hated himself. Conrad ached for relief, for understanding, for salvation, but he didn't know where to begin looking for it. Perhaps it would help if even just one person understood him. Maybe that would make him feel as if he had something or someone to live for. On October 10th, 2012, Conrad sent Michelle a Facebook message. He asked, do you care what's been happening to me? She responded immediately, what's been happening? With that, Conrad opened up to her about his suicide attempt. He warned her, I'm not the person you thought I was, as if preparing for her to reject him. But Michelle didn't. She called him one of the most amazing guys she'd ever met. 
telling him how happy he made her. She told him that she wanted to help him get better. That intense conversation signaled a shift in their relationship. They became each other's confidants, sharing their darkest thoughts with one another. Even though they were miles apart, dealing with a world of pain, now they were in it together. Up next, Conrad and Michelle continue to spiral as their communications become more frequent and more toxic. Now, back to the story. In the fall of 2012, 17-year-old Conrad Roy and 16-year-old Michelle Carter were eight months deep in an on-again, off-again, long-distance relationship over text and social media. When Conrad attempted suicide that October, he reached out to Michelle for help. The two exchanged messages every day, even multiple times a day. Their families had no idea the relationship was so intense. Conrad's mother knew he had made a friend in Florida the year before, but she thought they were just acquaintances. In reality, Conrad was sharing his deepest secrets with Michelle, including that he still felt suicidal. He told her he was trying to decide between three methods of killing himself, drowning, overdosing on sleeping pills, or hanging. Michelle begged him not to go through with it. She told him he was scaring her. She tried to convince him that he had a lot to live for. But at the same time, she also romanticized death. In one of their conversations, Conrad told Michelle that he was worried he'd permanently damaged his liver with his Tylenol overdose. Michelle told him that her anorexia had damaged her liver as well. She pointed out that they both could have died from liver failure, then added, we would die together and be in heaven together forever. Conrad made similar grandiose statements, although his took an even more macabre turn. In November of 2012, a few weeks after Conrad attempted suicide, he told Michelle that he had experienced hallucinations of Satan while he was in the hospital. Michelle told him she had seen Satan too in her nightmares. Conrad responded, maybe we were meant to be together. The devil brought us together. He described a future in which both their souls would suffer in hell for eternity. Conrad advised Michelle to start praying every night and she promised that she would. Although Conrad was the first to mention Satan, Michelle seemed captivated by this fantasy that the devil was controlling their lives. The next morning, Michelle agonized to Conrad that she was the devil's child. She messaged him, he wants both of us. You're the only one who understands. Michelle seemed eager to turn their relationship into something epic. They weren't just boyfriend and girlfriend. They were soulmates, locked in a battle against pure evil. The only way they'd overcome it would be by supporting one another. Michelle tried to fit their relationship into a storybook romance as best she could. She loved the show Glee and actress Leah Michelle was her idol. Sometimes she'd send Conrad quotes from the show, pretending they were her own words. 
what she and Conrad had was bigger than real life. Only her fictional idols could convey how Michelle felt. But her intense feelings weren't always reciprocated by Conrad. Sometimes they'd talk late into the night and declare their love for each other. Other times he'd seem dismissive of Michelle and her problems. Michelle and Conrad liked to tease each other, but sometimes his taunts turned nasty. He'd say things like, go for a run fatty, even though he knew her history of disordered eating. He told her she looked gross in her Facebook profile picture. Sometimes he badgered Michelle about when they might be able to meet in person so they could have sex. But she wasn't ready yet. She worried that her friends would judge her. He responded that she was being dumb. By early 2013, their connection seemed to have dwindled. Michelle continued to send him messages she felt were romantic. She told him, you're the one I think I've been waiting to find. Conrad responded curtly, you said that before. Other times, he refused to answer her at all. Michelle was heartbroken and angry. She later told him, I was there for you and I helped you and you just forgot about me. Conrad may have pulled away from the relationship due to troubles in his home life. In February of 2013, the 17-year-old got into a violent altercation with his father. Police were called to the house and his father was arrested for assault and domestic battery. Conrad's father later said he was trying to discipline his son, but it got out of control. Whatever drove them apart, Conrad and Michelle apparently broke up. But on October 10th, 2013, Michelle sent him a message telling him how important he was to her. He asked her why she had messaged him. She wrote that she was watching a Glee tribute episode to the late actor, Corey Monteith. She said it made her realize how much she loved him and how much she would miss him if he were gone. When Conrad didn't answer, she asked, do you think we will get married? He didn't respond. Michelle's intensity was too much for Conrad. A few months later, they stopped talking and he began dating someone else. Michelle was crushed. She had talked about them spending their lives together. Now suddenly, he was gone. For Conrad, it seemed easier to move on. Outwardly, his life seemed to be going well. He began thinking about the future. In the spring of 2014, he took night courses at the Northeast Maritime Institute and earned his captain's license so that he could work for his father's marine towing and salvage company. He earned good grades during his senior year in high school and he was accepted to Fitchburg State University with a full scholarship. But around the same time, 18-year-old Conrad's mental health took another downturn. At one point, he went to go visit a friend, Tom, at Fitchburg State. But instead of making him feel excited about his future, the trip made him feel overwhelmed and out of place. Conrad sat rigidly on the bed, watching his friend Tom talk and laugh with a group of his friends gathered in the dorm room. He seethed with jealousy. He didn't understand why it was so easy for everyone else and so difficult for him. 
everyone else could crack jokes, tell stories, or come up with interesting things to say. All he could do was sit there. He knew that if he opened his mouth, anything that came out would sound stupid. His face felt hot and his palms were sweaty. He wondered if they were all thinking about how awkward he was, how boring. They must be wondering why Tom was even friends with him. Conrad wished he could just stand up and walk out without anyone noticing him. He wished he could disappear. He wished he didn't exist. After the trip, Conrad told his mother he was feeling anxious and having trouble sleeping. After months of silence, he reached out to Michelle and told her he was feeling depressed again. It was a difficult time for Michelle as well. In March, her doctor took her off Prozac and switched her to a different medication, Celexa. Michelle felt that her disordered eating symptoms grew worse after the switch. Given their volatile past and her own struggles, Michelle seemed conflicted about resuming her communications with Conrad. In late April, she texted a friend that she was finally starting to get over the relationship until his texts brought back old feelings. She wrote, I hate him, but I also really care about him. In her relationship with Conrad, Michelle seemed to feel many emotions at once, fear, love, anxiety, and excitement. It's not uncommon for adolescents to experience many feelings at the same time, but they often have difficulties processing them. In a 2018 study from Harvard and the University of Washington, researchers studied emotion differentiation, which is the ability to know and accurately label distinct emotions in yourself. This ability is particularly difficult for teens compared to both adults and children. Children usually only experience one emotion at a time, which makes it easy for them to identify what they are feeling. Adults may have many emotions at once, but they have usually learned to correctly identify them. Teens, in contrast, have not yet learned to distinguish between their different feelings. Lead author Eric Nook stated that adolescence is a period of more murkiness in what emotions one is feeling. He also stated that this may make it more difficult for teens to differentiate and regulate their emotions. Michelle, in particular, may have had even more difficulty processing emotions than other teens. A 2009 study by lead author Claire Yench found that women with anorexia had lower levels of self-reported emotional awareness and expression than the control group. This inability to identify and regulate emotions can have negative consequences. In another study, led by University of Michigan author Emery Demelraup, researchers found that people who lack the ability to differentiate these particular emotional states from each other or from a general feeling of unpleasantness might choose actions that are not appropriate to the current context and might exacerbate the problem. Michelle's friends advised her that she should be careful about getting involved with Conrad again. One said, I think that you talking to Conrad isn't good for you. Another warned her, he seems like bad news. But Michelle couldn't seem to resist her old flame. She brushed off her friend's concern saying, I don't want to lose him. He was my first love. 
Michelle and Conrad fell into a familiar pattern of discussing their mental health issues. She seemed eager to help him work through his problems. When he talked about how uncomfortable he was in group settings, she sent him links to articles on how to deal with social anxiety. On June 1st, 2014, Michelle texted him that she was planning on checking herself into an inpatient treatment program for her eating disorder. She wanted Conrad to consider checking himself in too, telling him that he needed professional help. Conrad rejected this idea. He didn't want people telling him what to do. He wanted to manage his problems himself. He swore that he'd continue to see a therapist and take his medication. But Michelle didn't think that was enough. She was worried. She told him she was afraid that if he didn't take more drastic steps to get help, he'd become suicidal again. Conrad promised her that he was no longer considering suicide. Michelle seemed reassured. At that point, Conrad didn't let on to Michelle how much his despair was beginning to overwhelm him, but he wouldn't be able to keep it a secret from her for long. Coming up, Conrad leans more and more on Michelle for support, but the encouragement she offers him takes a disturbing turn. Now, back to the story. On June 9, 2012, 17-year-old Michelle Carter checked into McLean Hospital in Belmont, Massachusetts to receive treatment for her eating disorder. It may have been difficult for her to focus on her recovery, even in a dedicated program. Her boyfriend, 18-year-old Conrad Roy, texted and called her for help with his own problems throughout her stay. His messages were sometimes frantic, like, I really need to talk, it's urgent. Michelle seemed overwhelmed. Her treatment program's rigid schedule didn't allow her to drop everything to take his calls. She apologized profusely to him when she couldn't respond. Conrad began slipping in comments, letting her know he was thinking about suicide again. At one point, Michelle texted him that they should plan to meet up when she was out of the hospital. He responded, if I make it that far. Conrad's internet search history presents a bleak picture of his mindset at the time. He Googled phrases like, is there a hell? And can you go to heaven if you commit suicide? On June 19, 2012, Michelle again asked him to promise that he wouldn't consider taking his life. He told her, I want to, but nothing is that bad. Two days later, Michelle left the hospital and returned home. Conrad asked if she wanted to hang out, then seemed angry that she had already made plans with other friends. He accused her of not making time for him, but when she asked to hang out a few days later, he replied brusquely that now he was busy. His hot and cold behavior confused Michelle. On June 22nd, she told a friend that she knew talking to Conrad wasn't good for her, but she wasn't sure how to stop either. Around the same time, she told classmates that she still held intense feelings for her old best friend, Alice, even though it had been two years since they stopped seeing each other. These feelings confused her. She didn't want to accept that she might be bisexual. Between Conrad's depression and Michelle's sexual confusion, 
life was becoming overwhelming for the two teenagers. On June 26, 2014, Conrad texted Michelle, I give up. She responded, worried. Conrad, you're not going to do anything, right? When he gave her vague responses, she grew more insistent, pleading with him, asking him to reassure her that he wasn't going to harm himself. When Conrad finally told her he was okay, Michelle snapped at him. Then stop saying you're going to do it if you aren't going to. I don't want you to say it if you don't mean it, because then I worry. Later on that same day, Conrad wrote to her, We should be like Romeo and Juliet at the end. Michelle thought it was a romantic gesture, until Conrad reminded her of how the play ended. She emphatically told him that she had no intention of dying. Michelle was clearly becoming overwhelmed by her role as Conrad's confidant and lifeline, the role she played in his life feeling responsible for shepherding his mental health could be comparable to that of a caregiver. A 2016 study presented by the National Alliance for Caregiving surveyed over 1,600 individuals who acted as a caretaker for someone with mental illness. The study found that 74% of respondents reported feeling high emotional stress and over half of those surveyed felt that caregiving made their own health worse. A 1999 study by Janice H. Jenkins and John G. Schumacher also found that of all the symptoms displayed by mentally ill patients, caregivers were most distressed by demonstrations of misery. Michelle witnessed Conrad's suffering day after day. Perhaps she started to crack under the pressure. On June 29th, she texted, Part of me wants you to try something and fail just so you can go get help. The next day, she took it a step further. When Conrad told her he was going to try to order poisonous seeds online, she responded, why don't you just drink bleach? By the beginning of July, she'd stopped trying to convince him to go to the hospital or seek help. Instead, when he spoke of killing himself, she replied, Jesus will take care of you, babe. You'll be happy and protected in heaven. I just want you to finally be happy. And if this is the only way you think you're going to be happy, heaven will welcome you with open arms. This was exactly what Conrad wanted to hear. It seems that this is when Conrad felt something shift in his mind. It was like a heavy burden had just rolled off his back. Michelle really understood him. Everyone else tried to convince him to be happy. They tried to persuade him that he should stay alive. It made him feel guilty, like he had to stay alive, just to please everyone else. Now, here was Michelle saying that he didn't have to keep struggling. He could just let go, and Michelle loved him, Conrad didn't think she'd ever try to hurt him. If she said it was okay to die, then maybe it was. Perhaps it wasn't such a big deal. It may be the only way he'd ever find peace. Maybe it was finally time. It isn't clear what Michelle's mindset was at the time. She later said she was using reverse psychology, 
hoping that by encouraging Conrad's suicidal ideation, he'd realize he was being irrational. Or maybe she really thought that she was helping him escape his pain. She could have considered it an act of compassionate euthanasia. These are the more charitable explanations for Michelle's behavior, but some have speculated that she was acting out more psychopathic tendencies. Perhaps Michelle felt emboldened by her ability to manipulate Conrad. In one interview about the case, clinical psychologist and author Seth Meyers said, a person may try to coerce another into suicide to gain a sense of power or gratification. The thinking is, if I can get this person to do the most extreme or outlandish thing ever, I could get this person to do anything. So I think that this was gratifying for this girl to have this degree of power or control over him. And that is the piece that seems most related to psychopathy. Because we know that psychopaths are oriented around winning and power above all else. Another possibility is that Michelle was simply ready for the relationship to end and she cruelly thought that Conrad's death was the easiest way out. There's some evidence that Michelle wanted to move on. That July, she was working as a volunteer sports coach at a summer camp. She met another girl there, Allie, a fellow coach. She texted a friend that she liked Allie. She hadn't felt that way about another girl since Alice. Michelle didn't tell Conrad about the feelings she had for someone else. By then, most of their communications revolved around Conrad's suicidal thoughts. On July 2nd, Michelle began asking Conrad when he was going to go through with the suicide. She also tried to convince him that his family would be okay if he died. Conrad asked her, how would you feel if your sister killed herself? Michelle responded that she would be devastated at first, but that she'd eventually find a way to cope and move on. Michelle went on to say that Conrad could be his sister's guardian angel if he passed away. The next day, she asked him again if he planned to go through with the suicide. He told her he wanted to go off into the woods and tape a plastic bag over his head. She asked him, if you're going to do a last tweet, can it be about me and tag me? When Conrad texted her the next day, still alive, Michelle was angry. She felt like he was making a fool out of her. She furiously texted him. You lied about this whole thing. You said you were going to go to the woods and do it. She added, I poured my heart out to you thinking this was going to be the last time I talked to you. I thought you really wanted to die but apparently you don't. I feel played and just stupid. But Conrad assured her that he still wanted to kill himself. He was just researching the least painful ways to do it. Michelle egged him on. She suggested that he find a way to overdose on heroin so he could be like Corey Monteith. Then she could be his Leah Michelle. Conrad laughed this method off as a joke but he still was serious about taking concrete steps to end his life. On July 7th, he told Michelle that he was planning on stealing a portable generator from work. He decided that he would drive to an empty parking lot and seal himself up in his truck with the generator running until it produced enough carbon monoxide to fill the truck cab and suffocate him. Michelle approved of the plan. Over the next two days, 
she hounded him about when exactly he was picking up the generator. On July 9th, Conrad brought the generator home from work. He told her he was ready to go through with his plan. Around 11 p.m. that night, Conrad texted Michelle that he was about to do it and that he loved her. She asked if he was serious, whether he had really turned on the generator. He didn't answer. She texted him several more times. Conrad, please answer me right now. You're scaring me. Conrad texted her around 10 o'clock the next morning, telling her he was okay. The generator had stopped working. They exchanged texts back and forth about what he should do next. Bizarrely, even though Michelle knew that Conrad was all right, she texted her other friends that morning, telling them that Conrad was missing. She seemed to want to elicit their sympathy. She wrote to a friend that she was losing hope that Conrad was still alive. She said she couldn't understand why he wasn't responding to her. In reality, Conrad was answering Michelle's messages. They had been texting nonstop. In those messages, Conrad told her he had fixed the generator. Michelle was pleased. She told him, you're ready, babe. You can do it. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with part two of Michelle Carter and Conrad Roy's story. We'll talk about the tragic end of their relationship and the heated public reaction that followed. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Crimes of Passion, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Crimes of Passion on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Christina Pamies, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Lainey Hobbs. <laughs>